This is Kino Kingdom 41. And um, it's it's action packed because for once I've actually watched films. Really? Um, as a treat for this movie podcast, I've actually <laughs> watched films as opposed to just like struggling through like two or three. So I've got 46 films, um, all Hungarian films from the 1920s. <laughs> Um, that was that was my impression of uh, an old projector, by the way. <laughs> I thought it was a track by Autekka. They must have been. They must have. I'm just thinking, like the the cinemas in the like up to the well up to the 90s, you could smoke in there and stuff. So people, oh, yeah, it must have just been like pests of smoke just like clouding up in front of you and you're trying to watch these. Imagine sci- that, yeah. Like <laughs> it'd be like uh, 1920s and like whatever the formation of the Soviet Union was, some horrible communist country where everyone was miserable. Only They couldn't afford food, but they could afford cigarettes. And oh, yeah. Just, oh, it'd be so, and, of course, no one knew about cancer or anything back then, like in terms of like the link between cigarettes and cancer. So they'd just been chugging away. Kids. Oh, yeah. And they, would, they would have no... You certificate. Kids <laughs> puffing away. And there'd be no etiquette as well. So like in the 40s and 50s, you'd be watching a film and... It... And then you'd have people smoking. Ah, this is a great movie. Such a, it's a great movie. Is everyone having a good time? And you're like, ah, you shut up. Well, I suppose if the Marx Brothers were in there, it probably would sound like that. <laughs> and that was in Avatawe. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was just the Chinese. Let's <laughs> Kenvig. Let's not go down this route, okay? Because I'm going to no. end up spending money on. We don't deliver to, to Cardiff Bay, Mister Roberts. But if I throw in fifty quid, can you can you cycle from Kenvig? I don't even know where it is. <laughs> Um, uh, I, by the way, after that podcast, I went in and I chatted to Faye and said, Oh, yeah, it was, it was a brilliant episode, laughs galore, brilliant, millions of viewers, uh, listeners. And then I said, Oh, we mentioned that Chinese Nabakemvig, and she literally just looked up and like lost, lost in reverie for a place I've never been. Um, I want to kick off with the Arkansas because I had, um, a, a three stepper from a listener who, <laughs> is sworn to secrecy mm. and demanded that they only be referred to as wardrobe discoverer so this is from wardrobe discoverer and um they had to get well everyone had to get from margot robbie to ryan philippe and obviously it's two nil to you against the audience um and they said uh, uh, Mr. or Mrs. Discoverer said that Margot Robbie is in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with Brad Pitt, who is in Snatch with Jason Statham, who's in Chaos with Philippe, and then they've added Boom. So I think they they're under the impression that that's it. They've won. Well, I've got a three stepper as well. Oh, it's a draw. Okay, but I may concede this one Ooh. for reasons I'll go into. So. Okay. Uh, Ryan Philippe is in Gosford Park with Helen Mirren, who's in Collateral Beauty with Will Smith, who's in Suicide Squad with Margot Robbie. Oh, so that's okay. yeah, it's all true. Now, the reason I, I may concede it is because <laughs> when I was constructing this uh, pathway, um, I knew that Helen Mirren and Will Smith had been in a terrible ensemble drama uh, in the mid 2000s or whatever it was. Um, in this, it was sort of in the same breed as like uh, uh, Crash and things like that, stuff which wins awards but everyone hates. Um, 
Okay. And I, but I couldn't remember the name of it, but I didn't want to look it up. <laughs> Collateral beauty. So what I did was I half cheated by like reading some articles about Will Smith in the what? hope that I'd stumble upon it. <laughs> Um, so that that's kind of yeah that's like circuitous cheating really isn't it yeah, yeah which is actually the like sequel a... to collateral beauty <laughs> really i'm cheating myself i'm cheating myself out of the prize by being so deeply honest but um apparently this is a terrible film so oh, right. i'm kind of interested to watch it actually because it's like one of those mind bendingly terrible like why was it even made kind of movies so i'm quite intrigued so I'm sure you're, you're, worse. You, and and you you could find without because you cheated let's let's call it what it is you you uh, you can't think of another way round so you're conceding this so it's it's yeah two one to still to you but the audience has got a point okay that's cool if it didn't have such a stupid title then it would have helped collateral beauty what does that mean I'm sure it's all explained in the sentimental <laughs> script. Yeah, that's one of those. That's like like we said before about one of the the, the titles that my random uh, generator comes out with. It's one of those films that sounds impre- like like in space, no one can hear you dream, and then you think about it, think, hang on. Um, and it's one of the like, oh, the films called yeah. Collateral Beauty. Oh wow, that's uh, oh. Oh, no, it's, no, it's not. Oh, it's, that's a polysyllabic <clears throat> word, so it must be meaningful. And then you um, think about it, it's like what. <laughs> That's a polysyllabic word, so it must be meaningful. Um, yeah, it's like, uh, well, <laughs> my surname is Roberts, but it's not meaningful. It's polysyllabic. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's actually pronounced Robert as well. I, I just made that up because it's true. And uh, before, because um, I invented it because it was true. Uh, speaking of my machine, actually, um, I. I, I I pressed the button twice today because I I was I've got my random uh, title generator and then I've got my random tagline generator, and I pressed the random title generator and it came up with Fad Max and I thought hmm that seems lazy, like I, don't, I was like I'm not happy with that. But and also it would just be someone driving around the Australian outback with like a load of pogs wearing a shell suit, which is like I don't know. Yeah. Listening to with it like and then his phone would go off and it would be a crazy frog polyphonic ringtone. And it would like start off with a shot of like the keys and his ignition and it'd be like a Tamagotchi hanging from it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and then behind him in the seat, not a fad, but it would have a it would have a um a Game Boy Advance SP with like a tribal design on it that he's got um <laughs> like he's got like a Mario game, but he's only charged it once when he bought it, but it still holds its charge even now. He just has a quick two minute blast on it on Tetris and that's it. Um basically it's so, a, a retro handheld collector scouring the uh, apocalyptic wasteland. You would find Jack Sprat. Can you imagine if it was not not just not just so Fad Max, not just driving around to like get gasoline to make to the next yeah. town and and like helping people in need and just surviving in like whatever yeah. he can scavenge, actively having a hobby that's <laughs> difficult and expensive anyway in an apocalypse. So he'd be like, go. He'd be like, oh, what's over this hill? And he'd drive up, and they would just be like, just wailing winds and just sand blasting in his face which is just and he's like oh i, oh, I can't see any tazos on the floor uh, <laughs> going into towns like hoping to come across a really rare master system game released like in Japan rifling, rifling through cupboards and stuff and just you'd find like some perfectly good tin food and just like nah chuck that away 
Yeah, but then he'd find he... a tiger handheld and he'd be all over it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I didn't. I didn't decide to go for that. Um, so I, I pressed the button on my my tagline generator, and that came up with "returning to go back," <laughs> which which I liked because it's a it's a it's a double layered thing, isn't it? Because in my it head, is. if I don't know what the film would be called, we'd obviously have to discover that. But if if I saw a tagline that was "returning to go back," I, I imagine like something that Rutger Howard would start in the mid eighties, and mm. It would be constant references to like a first film or the events of of a, of events we aren't party to. So yeah. he he would return to a town and they'd say, "Oh, you're back. Why are you back? Why have you returned?" And he'd say, I've "Returned to go back." And they would mm-hmm. be like, "To to the castle to to do whatever." Yeah. But then, the what, like in be... Back to the Future, you're going to go back? No, not exactly. Like back to no, the future. I'm not going back in time. I'm going back to a castle to to rescue yeah. someone. And and then the whole film would because it's returning. He's returned, so he's obviously been there and done stuff before. It would do be it would do that cardinal sin of we're watching. Were they talking about a film we wish we were watching? Well, I remember when you remember when you were first here before you returned and you did all that cool stuff. And he's like, yeah, yeah, but now I'm. No, I'm. I've returned, and I've got to go back. So I've got to shoot off. So. <laughs> Referencing more interesting events than the ones we're seeing. <laughs> and of course, the, the like the villagers are asking. So, if you're just returning to go back, why didn't you just stay? Then you. And what do you? <laughs> and what do you? Yeah, yeah. You could just yeah. Or, or, or what to go back and do what? And he's like, I've got to go back first, and then. Then it will be revealed. It's it, it's such a mystery. It must be it'd be so intriguing. The trailer would be like full of lines like that. I must return yeah. in order to understand why it is that I must go back. <laughs> mean the same thing, though, don't they? <laughs> and then and then him like trotting off on a horse uh, like across the dunes to this like castle in the distance with lightning flashing behind it, and the villagers would say, "I." Why is he returned? And then someone else would say, "He returned because he needs to go back." Oh, oh, <laughs> oh! Right, Thanks basically for clearing that up. Variations on the tagline, really, the whole script. <laughs> yeah, and then when he gets to the castle, and he steps, and he shouts up like, um, like Quantos, Quantos. And then some evil would be like, why have you returned? And he'd say, well, <laughs> quite, quite complicated. You won't believe this. <laughs> oh, why, and if you returned to come back, why didn't you just stay? <laughs> Don't question me, Quantos. Just open the fucking gates. Um, so before we go into, into the into what this, the meat and bones of this podcast, um, I check, in my junk folder, um, I found some sponsorship that someone had, had sent um i say someone is ted levine so it's not just some Ooh. bloody hillbilly and uh yeah so just quickly do this and then we'll launch into into the the film this is um so this episode kino kingdom 41 is sponsored by ted levine's vocal coaching school and struggle and getting their voice. 
voice is heard and speaking clearly. And uh, uh, I'm here at deadleving.com to just explain how to maybe uh, speak more clearly and get yourself heard out there on the stage on the on the movie sets. So come to deadleving.com and uh, soon be uh, 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 talking, you know, clear, clear as a bell. So yeah, any any uh, any young actors or actresses out there who feel like they're not projecting enough when they're on movie sets, or get on TedLevine.com and uh, he'll show you how to project your voice yeah. and uh, just explain things, you know, so everyone at the back of the auditorium can understand exactly what you're saying. Crisp as a diamond at the back of the room, brilliant. And who better to do it than Ted Levine? <laughs> I can't think of any other actor who could speak as clearly as him obviously we can only we because we're under a strict two-hour time limit for each podcast i couldn't do i did have another email uh, it was um how to make your it was a, another podcast actually how to make your voice less irritating and that was hosted by ray romano but i i i thought um ted levine was offering more sponsorship so i, I went with yeah. ted um I, so I think that's best. Obviously, um, yeah. obviously he, as we all know he trained nick nolte so everything he knows and also i think he taught tom which to sing as well if i'm not <laughs> mistaken um so and he told yeah. john leguizamo oh you're opening your mouth far too much can you just speak other side of it please <laughs> and then yeah so ted levine said oh, john you're opening your mouth there a little a little too wide just uh Maybe close your mouth a little bit and people are understand what you're saying. And then John Leguithamo said, What? What? And then Ray Romano was just in the corner going, And then, <laughs> Like a foghorn, like a tiny toy foghorn. Um, so, yeah, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six. Well, I've actually got like eight films, but it's six, really, because I'm going to talk about the one trilogy in one fell swoop. So I've got six films. What are you what are you got in your back pocket? I have ten films. Um bloody hell. But uh, there's a few two minutes here, don't you worry about that. It's been it's been a pretty good week though, overall. Oh, okay. Yeah, mine's not been mine's been nicely varied. Um yeah. I I'd say good I'd say good. I'd say yeah, it's been okay. at least interesting. I almost Arkansas myself, but uh, not Arkansas, <laughs> sorry. Uh, I am getting lost in everything. Uh Darfur myself. But I I, 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 I I recovered from it. Uh which Oof. is fine. So yeah, well you've got ten films, so I'll let you smash on first then. Okay. Well we'll start with a, a film called Crawl, which is on Netflix. Uh, which is about a young woman in Florida who uh, defies the advice during Hurricane Wendy and heads to her father's house uh, to check on him. Um, he's not there, so perhaps he's in the old house where which they left after the parents' divorce. Uh, and the old house is in the swamps. Uh, and the crawl part of this relates to the crawl space underneath the house, okay. uh, which is of horrible rat infested basement really which is too low to stand in obviously hence the crawl um it's disgusting down there 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 is a moment when she disrupts a spider's nest and it lands on her face Mm. and they scuttle all over her yes 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 um 
Anyway, she finds she finds her father there in the crawl space seriously injured. Um, but then when she goes to pull him out, a giant alligator arrives. So it's girl versus gator, uh, or indeed gators, um, while she's her, you know, basically crippled father. She's repairing her relationship with him whilst trying to fight off gators. Um, this is a uh, directed by. Uh, the French film director Alexandra Aja, Aja, don't know. Uh, in, it was made in 2019, anyway. It's uh, it was one of Quentin Tarantino's favourites of that year. Um, the yeah, so the hurricane is nicely rendered. It's very chaotic and it has these really foreboding, rolling black clouds, which gives the film this kind of nightmarish atmosphere it's got really good set design it's all grim and dirty but with a slightly unreal larger than life kind of not quite true to life kind of look uh and the the gators are pretty convincing it's a mix of good cgi i like uh, how you say gators not alligators as if you use the word so often that you've yeah. just learned to shorten it oh yeah well, we need to keep this under two hours, don't we? Um, um, so it's a mix of CGI and puppetry, which is cool. Oh, cool. Uh, okay. Yeah. So it's like um, it, it, the 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 way it doesn't. None of the film looks exactly real. It's like I say, it's a bit larger than life. But the key to it is it's consistent. So it all looks like that. So it's not like it's um you know like a, a location here and then a studio there. It's like everything just seems sort of. Uh, studio set like and that's fine um it doesn't mess about when it comes to the the gators themselves as well i mean it's just like they're not sneaking around it's just direct action really between them and um the young woman um it's extremely gory and very bone crunching and this is something like a winner so far to me yeah yeah it's uh it's it's decent. I, I I like the relationship between the dad and the daughter. The dad, of course, is played by Barry Pepper. Who else? Um, <laughs> I, I like their relationship because he is he's quite all man. He is protective of her, but he doesn't patronise her, and he has complete faith in her resourcefulness and courage. Well, that's so my nice, Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't get bogged down in like, oh, come on, you can do this. You can do this. It's just like it's more like you go and do this and she's like okay i'll give it a go so it's like it's no there's no fanning around um so really it's overall it's a film about um a woman being terrorized by alligators and it's exactly what you'd expect from it really um it's well made um it's very efficient and exciting and fast moving and pretty gross and yeah it's just it's quite a positive horror in a way creature feature because it's very much like the bad people get their comeuppance um uh, it's not mean spirited it's it's like it's just a nice little story and yeah it's pretty exciting enjoyed it it's a good good little film and, and that's on netflix isn't it it is I, I i almost watched that the other day um but i knew you'd mentioned you were going to watch it and I thought I'd check first because I, I I'd had a few uh, a few middlers and I thought oh, a few bets and I thought I'll oh, check if your you, your take on it was good and then I'll have a goosey. Um, it's definitely above on, middle. On the subject of um, creature features, 
as you know, I do like monster films, which is why I was hovering over it. But I, I'm I'm about 20, 25 minutes into. I thought I was watching the new. I, I get lost in the Godzilla films, but I know Godzilla vs Kong because I watched. I thought I'd seen Godzilla, but I'd actually watched Rampage, and right. King, and Kong Skull Island. Right. So I I now that on it's either on Netflix or Prime as usual I pay no attention. Um, it's uh the, you know the 2019 Godzilla and I've got to watch. So is this Godzilla God- King of the Monsters or is this a different one? This is Godzilla King of the Monster with Vera Farmiga and Kyle Chandler. And I don't want to talk about it too much. I just want to talk about Kyle Chandler because he is keen. So handsome. He's so keen to be a Baldwin brother. He is so, (laughs) he's like, oh, I reckon he could go to the Baldwin family. Oh, yeah. As he filled out the hair and stuff, he could sit at the Baldwin Thanksgiving dinner and they'd be like, oh, he's probably like, I don't know, one of the cousins. They'd probably prefer it if Stephen didn't turn up and Kyle Chandler did, in all fairness. We'll just call you Steve Luck and then God's fine with it. Um, but yeah, I was looking and thinking, God, you look like a Baldwin brother. But also, I just want to say that I, I could well be very, very wrong for the rest of this film. I've only seen the first 20 minutes. <clears throat> um, so Vera Farmiga and, and Kyle Chandler create this thing called the Orca, which can, can control the Titans, right? It, it t- tunes into them and they see it as like an alpha alpha male or whatever, and they, and they calm down around this this sound. <clears throat> Vera Farmiga and um, I always forget her name. The one who sounds like she's got a perennial cold from Stranger Things. Um, Millie, yeah, Millie, 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 Bobby, Bra- Bobby, Millie Brown, Bobby Brown. Millie Bobby Brown. She's um, she still hasn't shifted it. The film starts. She's banging back lem sips, and so she and her and her mother get kidnapped by Charles Dance. Good, and then they say. Right, Monarch, the main company behind everything, say, right, we're gonna have to get Cal Chandler because he's her strange ex-husband, and he helped, he helped create this Orca like briefcase. So he's gonna help mm. us get it back. He rocks up, and I thought surely he's going to be useless because what you're looking to do is track down Charles Dance. Like him knowing how this briefcase works doesn't really matter because when you find mm. Charles Dance, you'll find the briefcase. And the first thing that happens is they take him to this military thing where they, they're saying, right, we need you to get the Orca back. Any ideas? And he says, yeah, kill kill Godzilla, kill them all. You know, I don't want to be any part of this and storms off. And what they should have said is, oh, balls to him then. He's completely useless and he's holding this whole operation back. No, they bring him on board on the helicopter, taking him around. You're like, why is he there? Like, I would be more used because at least I'd be up for it. Um, <laughs> so and they're like they're on the helicopter, it's like, and then someone leans over and says, oh, "Are you one of the Baldwin's? Are you Adam?" Um, so anyway, I watched uh, the Ocean's trilogy, which is interesting to me because I know it's it's a series of films you've never seen. Never seen an Ocean's film. Um, yeah. um, so, so the the premise is effectively that. Uh, Ocean's Eleven, Danny Ocean is played by George Clooney. He's fresh out of prison, uh, meets up with his friend Rusty, played by Brad Pitt, and they plan a heist of a fortune from a casino that is run by someone called Terry Benedict, played by the ever-sexy Andy Garcia, uh, who happens to be knocking boots with uh, George Clooney's ex-wife, Tess, played by Julia Roberts. And it's it's a heist film, so it's just them in Vegas, wearing awesome suits constantly banging back cocktails and bourbon and planning this really extensive heist that involves 11 people hence the title remake of a film from the 60s i think um which i've never seen and then the heist happens so i'm gonna make this a bit of a five minute because i think that you should watch these films because how, how this works right is like i watched oceans 11 12 and 13 in the same day 
And obviously, I was they were spinning around in my mind a little bit. And much like another trilogy I watched, what are the, the Bourne films? You know, mm. I said you sh- you can watch like one and three and kind of skip out two. It's very much a similar story here because okay. they follow on and the plot I- extends through. And the, you know, the, the oceans twelve and thirteen, they basically just get an extra person in to help. And unfortunately, one of those people is Eddie Izzard at one point. But wow. whereas the first film is this wonderfully early 2000s you know uh, like jazz music filled shiny sexy sultry film with all these cool scenes some really nice dialogue brad pitt constantly eating for some reason good um and and this this heist that they they plan and plan and plan and then it and then it you see it actually take place uh and then there's like a nice ending to it the second this the second film oceans 12 continues on but it, 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 I don't know, while the first film was pretty breezy, the second one is knowingly winky at itself. And mm. I, f- I found that it was really, it felt really scattergun in, in its approach because it was it was like, right, we can do what we want. This this cast of people, of like Andy Garcia, Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle's accent, by the way, isn't spot on as an Englishman. And he not only not only is it bad, they draw attention how bad it is by constantly making him things like, oh mate, we're in Barney. And they all like look at each other. Barney rubble, trouble. And you know, like, don't draw attention to this. Like just talk and get the oh lines out. Don't like draw attention to this cockney slang you're doing really badly. Um so yeah, this so this the second the second film Motions 12 goes on. And the the problem is it's it's just it feels like you're just watching people have fun. Um, and there's a scene in it which was really, really bad, where Julia Roberts as Tess, uh, Danny Ocean's now wife in the second one, they've sort of got together. They, they, they say, "Oh, she looks like Julia Roberts." And then there's a scene where Bruce Willis comes in and thinks she's Julia Roberts, and it's a really weirdly extended, lengthy, almost single takey kind of comedy facade mm. scene in the middle of the film. And so this is really, but this is really badly judged. Because it is not funny and it's awkward and and then and then there's a bit where like Julie Roberts is on the phone to herself and you're like no this really isn't working and also oh. the the kind of fun and the beauty of the first one is you hear about the plan kind of like a Mission Impossible we get a get a, you know you you you, you okay we we haven't got a key and we've got to get into the casino which is filled with acid and then when we get to the vault that's made out of dinosaurs that eat faces then we got to get past that and then when we're in there the money is made out of bullets that explode and you're like oh that does sound a bit that does sound a bit testy. Um, and then you, you see it kind of take place in the second one. It's like, oh yeah, we're going to rob the casino, and, and and then and then it kind of just happens around a load of like these silly gags that are spread out. So, right. bit of a disappointment. But I was in, you know in for a penny and for a pound of human flesh that you've freshly cut off someone's ass. And I thought I'll watch the third one, and the third one is just much better because it gets back to that whole oh okay this is the plan. And this is how it carries out. And also, you've got Al Pacino in there as a as a as a, a an evil casino owner. But mm. there's a, there's a really funny Al Pacino at this point presumably wouldn't have looked like he's just stepped out of a sarcophagus as well. <laughs> no, no, he looks like he's just stepped out of a salon actually. Um, <laughs> so you've got him as this casino owner that, it, and and then they reconnect with uh, Andy Garcia from the from the first film where they, you know, they both hate. Al Pacino and they want to bring that his new casino and there's this quite funny subplot about how they get um uh the, one of their their group in to pose as a as a sort of casino uh like ranker you know like a, like a like a Michelin star guide thing and then they 
treat the actual guy who's there to rate the hotel really, really badly. And that's quite funny. You'd know the mm. actor as well the second you saw his face. Um, so that, it, there's more, it, it seems more focused. And whilst it's got these like sort of little, little side jaunts and these little, you know, um, it, it, it's like there's actually a plan. Whereas in the in the 12th one, it just, in the second one, sorry, it just seemed like people pissing around. So I would watch them and I would watch the mm. first one, which is clearly the superior film, and then just watch the third one because the second one is a bit of a weird mess. Mm. The second one sounds like what my fear is, what what's put me off about the films from afar, as in it seems it, they all seemed a bit like Steven Soderbergh having a laugh with his mates more than actual films. But, I, I, but from what we're saying, yes, the second one is like that, whereas the other two are actually pretty solid. Yeah, I think the first one is is a very sexy film. I mean, there's, it's it's so stylish, and the music is yeah. just like light, light jazz and it's I was watching kind of like the, well, kind of like out of sight or something. Then really, yeah, really. And, and it's so just funny. about George Clooney. You look at him and you think, yes, again, you could very easily kiss me at a bar. Um, even if he was just the doorman, I was walking in, he just give me a quick kiss. I'd be like, oh, I'm not offended because you're really handsome. But mm. I, I think mm-hmm. with 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 this, it, it, it was it's so stylish and so wonderfully of its time um, that you can't sort of help but get infected. I watched it in the middle of the day and I really wished that I was just drinking a cocktail, like a really ostentatious yeah. cocktail or like a really nice, cause I, this they're drinking and eating all the time. You think, Oh, I'm, I'm loving this. This is, this is going to be going. Um, and yeah, I, I do think, I do think you should watch at least the first one to see how it makes you feel. Yeah. I, what I found though is I watched all three in one day and uh, about a week ago and I was in bed mm. last night, obviously because I knew we were going to be doing this today. And I was thinking, sitting there and I thought, yeah, I could do that again. Actually. I think I could watch them again like right. today, which is, and I think it's because they're so breezy and so oddly comforting in the absolute mm. lack of any kind of threat, you know, yes. that you can, you can just, just enjoy it. And it feels like um almost like ASMR for your eyes. So yes. I, I feel like I could very easily watch the first and third one again, like even tonight after this. I I think Steven Soderbergh did an interview with Mark Maron interviewed him recently. Was that is that true? Or maybe it wasn't recently. Yeah, yeah no, it was, it was about a month ago. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was interesting. He is an interesting guy. He has. I'm not sure I completely am on board with his. He, he makes a very definite distinction between films movies and movies. And film, yeah. Mm. And I'm not sure I'm completely on board with that, but I guess you can kind of see it in the work he does. Like clearly something like the Oceans trilogy is his movies uh, kind of side. Uh, whereas something like, I don't know, Solaris would be like a film film. Something. But he does it well. He does do the breezy stuff well. Yeah, is, as, yeah, as evidenced by this, yeah, absolutely. And and the good yeah. thing is as well, of course, that um, when you when you I know you haven't watched this film because you thought it would just be a lot of people pissing around having a laugh, which is a valid thought. But this also falls into the category of being twenty years old now, so it's also got that beautiful thing about like redundant tech, and oh, not gosh. everything is like hyper virtual reality. It's all very uh, physical the way they work around things, and it's just always right. it's a good time. It's like watching a it's almost like watching like a seventies heist film. You know, it's 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 grounded in reality sort of thing. Good, good. Well, maybe I'll give the first one a go. Where, where are they? Are they all on a channel? On a yes, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they are all on Amazon Prime. Good stuff. 
uh, well, I'll stick with Amazon then. I'll do it. This is only a, a quick one. Um, it's an Amazon original uh, called Tom Clancy's Without Remorse. Not just Without Remorse. It's definitely Tom Clancy's Without Remorse. Um, so this is very darkly directed by Stefano Salima, who made uh, Soldado Sicario 2, which I actually thought was better than the first one, but you know it's the only one i've seen and yeah i really liked it because i remember you saying the first one was just emily blunt walking around asking people to explain things to it exactly it doesn't really sound ideal yeah but the second one was just quite like guttural i quite like it it was just beneath the del toro frowning and shooting people it's fine well he has a rough time (laughs) he has a rough time in that film oh Um, yeah (laughs) um yeah the reason it's going to be a quick one is because I need to watch this again without distractions because it seems pretty good. Um, but I feel that I, because of child rearing, it I wasn't quite giving it all my attention. Anyway, this to start us off with this operation in Syria, uh, which goes wrong. A SEAL team is there, and this operations in this operation in Syria, um, and it goes wrong. Turns out that they are attacking Russian terrorists. Um, upon their return, Michael B. Jordan. Uh, the actor, he retires from the military to care for his family. Um, and it hit, then we find out that his unit are being um, one by one assassinated by terrorists. We assume these Russian terrorists. Did you watch um, Commando by accident? I, genuinely, it's it made me think of that exact thing. <laughs> like there are actual scenes where almost identical. But anyway, it's a really well-framed opening because it's like, you have the happy family life of Michael B. Jordan, something his his wife's pregnant, and it's like they're having a party around the house, and it's like it just cuts away to basically these assassins just taking down his uh, his team sort of thing. So you know they're closing in. Anyway, finally they come to Michael B. Jordan's house um, and attack him, um, and it's pretty grim stuff. And he gets uh, very badly injured in the attack and basically he goes on the rampage in a sort of controlled way to find out who attacked his family um there's also this also stars it's got jamie bell who plays a slimy cia operative it's got jodie turner smith um one from queen and slim she's uh michael bidjohn's seal colleague and it's got guy pierce as the secretary of defense Good. So some decent actors there. Um, so yeah, whilst Michael B. Jordan is trying to tracking down these terrorists, um, Guy Pearce and Jamie Bell are kind of embroiled in this conspiracy slash cover up at the very top. Um, so Michael B. Jordan is very commanding as always, um, as good performance from Jamie Bell. Um, there's some good tense action sequences, um, especially the, there's really cool plane crash sequence and the final sequence is pretty much the whole second half of the movie and it's very well done in a very ruthless rainbow six kind of way and okay uh, which is cool so it's very like quick and professional um and very grounded in fact there is a sequel in the works which is called rainbow six 
So that will be the next film in the series. So, so, so the second is the second half is this operation that's very professional yeah. and grounded. So it's it's really like Commando then, from what you said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, they need he finds the island by getting a protractor out of the drawers <laughs> and uh, <laughs> working, working out, out basically the amount of fuel was in point, the planes. Pointing at so it turns up, and then as he's as he's out of the firefight, and then going like underground, they're still running around shooting at like something, even though he's not even on the same level as them. Brilliant. <laughs> um, he, the action scenes are a bit dark. Found that like because it's classy, I guess, but I it, it was distinctly dark movie. It's also. <laughs> It's very far-fetched, this whole movie. And and this is where it took me a while to get on board with it because it's so far-fetched and conspiratorial uh, combined with a really, really kind of heavy self-seriousness um, and a whole bunch of generic talk about patriotism and stuff. I don't know. It felt weighty in tone, but just flimsy in plausibility. Um, so, yeah, and... And the, Michael B. Jordan's character, John, he's 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 such a reckless soldier in this movie. He just does what the hell he wants constantly. <laughs> and everyone just seems to see this as a strength. But but I don't know. Clearly, you, I think you'd see this as just emotionally compromised. And he continually shows that he can't be trusted to function in a team. So I don't know where they're coming from here. But um and he he's constantly believes his judgment is above the law of military hierarchy. So, yeah, it's utterly preposterous. But I think what you need to do, I think it'll be more enjoyable second time around because I'll be expecting that. And I'll just accept the fact that it's it actually makes no more sense. It's no more plausible than, yes, Commando. It's just much better made uh, and much classier. And um, yeah, and I'm quite keen on the sequel. So, um I think if if you're hovering over without remorse, it is worth it. It's not just straight to TV trash. It's uh... well, that, the the thing is that's you saying you going in for a second viewing and looking forward to a sequel. Now that I know, and that's my kind of thing anyway. I'd be straight in mm-hmm. there. Yes, um, <clears throat> I'll be too busy shouting yes, 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 yes. I wouldn't even <laughs> notice that the plot was implausible. I'd be shouting over everyone, apart from Guy Pierce. Well, I'll be looking at thinking yes, if we were at a bar. <laughs> Always, you got, yeah, you got George Clooney on the door, Guy Pierce behind the bar, um, David Strathen in the bog, <laughs> David Strathen spinning on a stool, um, I, spinning, just like little, spinning on a stool, but he doesn't realise it's unscrewing, and then it's <laughs> suddenly this rom- this romantic drama in your mind has turned into a farce, um. I uh, shall I quickly do an, a, a just a, another real quick one, a two minute. Yeah, yeah, uh, please do. Uh, I'll talk about something called The Swarm, uh, which is on Netflix. Um, cheekily doesn't tell you that it's a foreign language film, but that's fine because I always have subtitles on anyway. It's a French language creature feature. Oh, don't get too excited. Um, right, okay, <laughs> so this widowed lady, uh, living in. in rural France she breeds locusts um to make into protein rich flour and snacks but the locusts are dwindling and funds are low and there's a lot of tension with her teenage daughter and young son um 
so she considers packing it all in, but then she discovers that the locusts, what they really want is to feed on human blood, or in fact, any blood, really. Um, so she starts feeding them her own blood and they start thriving. Business booms, but it's at a cost because she's obsessed um, uh, and it's affecting her family relationship in other ways. Um and ultimately threatening people around her because it's like she just needs more and more blood. Uh, so she tries to source more blood for for her swarm, uh, not necessarily from her own arms, should we say. Uh, it's a very sober and slow film. It's a, it's very family drama focus. There's virtually no humour in it, which I think is a little bit disingenuous because it, it the whole thing is is that they're kind of the whole family's grieving over the loss of the father but i think it's a bit disingenuous because it doesn't really show the full picture of grief it just it just seems like this kind of dead seriousness as a smokescreen for what was really a secretly a b-movie underneath unfortunately the the horror element the actual like vampiric locust thing it's barely even acknowledged, really. It's I can see that it's obviously meant to be metaphorical. I mean, the fact that she's literally offering offering her blood to keep her family alive. But um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just narrow-minded or simple-minded. But I just think a film about killer locusts should be a bit more fun than this, or at least more horrifying. Like, like the the, the final third of the movie is just a parade of poor editing and mishandled tension it feels like a film which has been made by someone who decided to make a horror film without having any interest in making in in horror you know without any interest in that as a genre um i mean there's nothing wrong with a horror which is a family drama first i mean you can have stuff like the babadook and things but but something like the babadook it works on multiple levels it does work as a horror film but it also happens to be an effective family drama as well so but the so there's nothing wrong with that the problem is is that the family drama in the swarm is just it's pretty it's pretty generic for the uh for the genre and and then you've got the horror element which is just downright bad so you've got a very average drama and a very poor poorly managed horror part so it drags it down into below average i'm afraid yeah i'm not a big fan of when you say creature feature good swarms of things yeah tiny creatures and it also makes me think about that spider-man uh i'm gonna give a ring home with them like than anything nanites or droney it's just it's lots of boring things isn't it regardless of the size it's like lots of little things are boring Mm. um that's why I haven't watched Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs to this day. Even when she turns up and they're all dwarfs, she's like, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> it's just too many of them. Oh, yeah, no, just, it'd just be one. Yeah. Mary Clyde. Snow White and the, the Dwarf. <laughs> um, I watched I watched Blood Diamond, and this is where I thought I'd oh. food myself. I, I'm sure I've seen this film, possibly in the cinema, but... I, I really must not have been because I remember dismissing it. I don't know why. I don't know if I was in a bad mood or maybe I didn't even see all of it or if it's just some weird, mild fantasy. But I sat down and watched it proper, proper um, by myself. 
And I, I really enjoyed this. I did think for the first few minutes, am I Darth Ward myself? Um, because this is a 2006, um, this is a political action thriller film directed by Edwards Vick, who I'll, I'll talk about after this because I didn't realize mm-hmm. how much gold he'd pushed out. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, and so Leonardo DiCaprio as uh, effectively just a smuggler um, who's trying to get off the African continent. Um, Jennifer Connelly, who's hanging around bars, drinking Guinness, bizarrely. Like, imagine being in, like, a blazing hot South Africa thinking, oh, do you know what? A Guinness. That's what I want. <laughs> Bizarre. Um, a bottle of Guinness. <laughs> um, and uh, Jimon Honsu. And the reason I thought I'd daft word myself is because this starts off with Jimon Honsu walking home with his son and they're, they're chatting away, his son dear, and they're having a laugh. And then a load of, like, revolutionaries turn up and they slaughter the village mercilessly like children women yes. babies and they're just dragging the blokes out and just randomly cutting their hands off and shooting them and forcing them into mines and i thought oh I, I i don't know i mean I, my buck i firmly buckled up my trousers after that let me tell you but i thought no oh, i i'm not sure if this is what i intended to watch but then it does open up into in, into more than just abject misery um and the film is effectively uh jimon honsu is has discovered this massive uh, diamond that he is trying to bury or does bury just as these revolutionaries get attacked by the military. And when he is in prison and at the same time as Leonardo DiCaprio, who gets caught at the same time trying to smuggle um, diamonds across the border, he hears uh, one of the guys shouting about this and he wants to get with Jimon Honsu and get the diamond so he can finally sort of buy his way off the continent. Leonardo DiCaprio's accent in this is spot on. And I actually remember talking to a, a girl we both used to work with because oh, she yeah. was South African and saying, yeah, his accent was like perfect in that film. Mm-hmm. And it is a tough because at some point he, he's got this sort of Rhodesian accent and then he slips into like Afrikaans as well at some points. And you think, mm-hmm. fair play, not not the easiest of accents to do. Um, no. And then at, at one point he slips into an accent, which is um, in Tonteg, which I was... <laughs> He's like a wrong, wrong one. Back to Afrikaans. Um, but no, it, it's really good stuff. And and it, I would say that I really, really enjoyed this film. And, and it had it had a nice message. Well, not a nice message, but it, you know, like a slightly more upbeat message behind it than you than I would have thought. But the, the sort of the only problem I really had because I was completely on board with it was up until the end when I realised when when um, Leonardo DiCaprio and Jim Honsu are, are together and they're off looking for this diamond, I realized I had no concept of time, of how long they've been together, how long this had been going on for. And, yeah. and, and, and it made me question their relationship because of how quickly Leonardo DiCaprio alters his relationships with every other person in the film over like mm. a period of hours or days. At the end of it, like there's a point where it's sort of slightly spoilertastic, but Jimon Honsu is, uh, catches up with his wife and daughter because his son has been taken off and brainwashed by these revolutionaries. And he meets up with his wife and daughter and there's this this huge emotional wave of back with him and then it's like right stay in this prison camp that i'm not going to make any attempt to get you out of because i'm going to get our son back and then at the and you're like hang on <laughs> yeah like uh, would you probably want to spend more time than shouting at them through a fence for five minutes before completely saying right they're alive off we go somewhere else now um and there's parts of, uh, parts of the film where he's like, oh, I think my son's down there in this, you know, in this camp that's got music playing or whatever in the jungle. And Leonardo DiCaprio just says, no, he's not. And then they just move on. And you think, mm, you, he didn't base that on anything. He he just said words. And you went off, oh, fair enough. 
Um, and you think to to go this far, this this on on a mission so emotionally charged, and then just rely on hunches? I was like, meh. But mm. yeah, everything else about it, I, I thoroughly enjoyed, and I I know I'll end up watching this again, if only to to just enjoy the accents and the constant smoking. Good, but yeah, the, towards the end of the film, I started to realize that I, I'd lost track of how much time was supposed to have passed. And I, I began to question the sort of validity of the main character's relationships. But mm-hmm. beyond that, I absolutely loved it. I remember, I haven't seen it since it first came out, but I remember thinking it was very good and being very impressed by um, Leo. But yeah. by that point, I knew that he was a good actor. So Yeah, he's, he's, I, I, he's becoming a, a Tom Cruise in that, like, he's in... There's the films that he's in that are bad are pretty rare. Yeah. Right. I, it would be interesting to go through his filmography, actually, and see if there are any real stinkers, because I'm not sure there would be many. Well, this is something we need to do, because we need we need to do the Richard Donner thing as well. I mean, he's, yes, he's we been do. dead for 20 years already, and we still haven't <laughs> done it. But no, I'm just looking at Edward Zwick's um, mm. uh, filmography, and yeah, you've got... I mean, there's a few of the other I don't know about, like, uh, about Last Night Glory, Leaving Normal, Legends of the Fall... Oh, which is the Brad Pitt film, isn't it? And then you've got The Siege, Lost Samurai, Blood Diamond, Defiance, Porn Sacrifice, Jack Reach and Never Go Back, which we'll skip over, American Assassin, which I really liked, and the Trial by Fire. Mm, looking at this, actually, there's a line, well, isn't there? Of 2016, where things went a bit whoopsie. Mm, yeah, maybe. Uh, Glory is a very good film uh, by the American Civil War. Uh, Legends of the Fall is okay. I mean, it's very beautifully made. And the last summer is really good. Um, yeah, you were talking about that a few weeks ago, one of the other episodes. But yeah, I can see Blood Diamond Defiance and whatever. But then you've got Jack Reacher Never Go Back, yeah. The Great Wall, American Assassin, which I liked, but a lot of people really didn't. He wrote that, didn't direct it. And then Trial yeah. by Fire, which I covered with um, that's the one with Laura Dern in, yeah. uh, which she, she sort of weirdly falls in love with a convict. And yeah, but he hasn't made a film since 2018, and he's only 68. So hopefully, it's about time. It's about time yeah. to come up with some more gold. Yeah. Um, good, yeah. I might have to watch that again then shortly. Um, Absolutely. Where is that available? That is on either <laughs> Netflix or Amazon Prime. Or maybe Disney. Oh, God. I'm, gonna have to, I'm really going to have to. It's 41 episodes in. I'm going to have to start making notes. I'm going to. It's ridiculous. Um, right, I'm going to talk about another Amazon original now. Um, oh, nice. Okay. Because, you know, these are the movies that pop up whenever you turn the bloody thing on. And this one's called Jolt. Uh, uh, that just sounds like an energy drink. Pretty much. Um, so, as this opening monologue exploring the definition of normal compared with ordinary apparently there's a difference anyway it talks about this little girl called lindy who cannot control herself she's full of rage she has something called intermittent explosive disorder so she's locked up in a padded cell uh, alone until a cure can be found uh and she languishes there into young adulthood uh and she's a nightmare she's she attacks the guards um She's just constantly kicking off. Not clear where she gets her fighting skills, I won't lie, considering she's just been sat here all the time. Anyway, she ends up in military school where she 
beat up men twice her size. She ends up getting electroshock treatment to keep her in check. So she has this thing fitted where if her rage rises, she hits a button and this electric current calms her down. It's like connected to her back. So all very plausible. So she, as as a kind of free lady, she starts a relationship with uh, an accountant na- uh, played by Jay Courtney. And he seems like a perfect man. Miscast Jay Courtney, I might add. He seems like a, a perfect man. Um, but then he's murdered. So it's not really a spoiler because it happens very soon. Um, so she, he's murdered and she sets out to find out who did it, basically, um, by kicking ass and taking names. Um, it's, yeah, it's got this electro-orchestral score, which is very bad. It's got very zippy, unclear editing, which is also bad. It's got this sort of unreal lighting with lots of neon and stark shapes. It is reminiscent, basically, of Atomic Blonde. And in fact, um, if you look at, is Kate Beckinsale who plays the adult um, oh, Indy, well, okay. and she is just totally channeling Charlie's Theron's look from Atomic Blonde. Um, yeah. Um, so the whole rage thing, which is kind of the, the the key concept here, it doesn't really make any sense because she, you, you see her early on, just getting like her rage building up in her because she's getting so annoyed with like, I don't know, rude people or uh, people who chew too loudly, you know, you know, these sorts of things. So she gets very, very angry about those sorts of things, has to push the button in order to calm herself down, obviously. But then when she's on the rampage, basically trying to find out the murderers, murderers of her boyfriend, she, walks into every situation extremely calmly and she never gets seems to get riled up at all by actual gangsters um so she gets riled up massively by people with slightly irritating habits but actual murderous gangsters no she's probably probably treat yeah who are talking to her probably quite poorly i would imagine yeah well the script is an absolute stinker it (laughs) it's it's a very ordinary vigilante plot really with some really grating dialogue loads of tiresome threats about uh underestimating women and the loads of juvenile put downs uh we'll just put like a profane word and um i and put it with another word to kind of like it like a i think is it's too rude to really say on this podcast but just really juvenile stuff basically really juvenile put downs the kind of things that a kid would make up on the spot and everyone would crack up it's like you've actually put this in a film. Um, so you get like wacky action scenes like where Lindy is cornered in a hospital by a cop and she starts throwing newborn babies at, at the cop. And and she, she's so she's going around. She has this weird unearned respect wherever she goes. Like there's this whole underground fighting group um that she walks into and she literally just walks into the place as these two men are fighting she wanders into the ring and everyone just stops and everyone's just fine with it and and then she like goes to confront like the main bad guy uh and she's just really rude to this guard and and the boss just immediately uh like fires the guard uh for some reason like because she's he's, he's so impressed with how cocky she is 
and she actually openly insults the main boss and he just admires her for it. It's really odd. Bobby Cannavale plays the world's most accommodating cop in this film. She keeps just, he's on her case, basically tracking her. And it, she just keeps walking up to him, like jump, literally jumping into his car, into his police car and stuff. And, and he'll just chat to her and just lets her go every time. Like he'll say, right, I'm going to arrest you this time. But she'll say, oh no, it's really important that I, you know, do this on my own. And he's like, all right. And even though she's leaving this trail of destruction of bodies behind her, like, it's like seconds after she they're in the car and he's uh, and she's saying to him i just need to do this thing i need to complete this mission and he says something like um uh well you know uh, talking to you i can tell that you'd you'd rather hurt yourself than anyone else (sighs) right okay clearly not true given the fact that she's shooting people and breaking their necks but anyway and then anyway seconds later after she says this she her she literally she she's left the gas on an apartment her apartment blows up in the middle of like a busy street busy busy new york street showering debris across this crowded street i mean there'd be uh, you know walking wounded dozens yeah like multiple dead and and it's like all right that was that's fine as a distraction whimsical um so yeah and uh, she's obviously a very slight lady and her small size is addressed early on and she points out there's more to fighting than strength there's speed and agility and skill so you think okay fine but then later on forget about speed and agility she is taking punches from massive bodyguards and hurling grown men through the air without (laughs) with with gay abandon and it's preposterous it suggests a franchise starter at the end back chance is all i can say about that uh it's really unconvincing and stupid um not funny enough to please anyone who's looking for comedy not thrilling enough to please action fans it's aimed at possibly aimed at 14 year old boys and no one older than that should apply and and that was jolt on amazon we're not going to watch that yeah. Have you ever seen 1997 Eddie Murphy outing Metro? Um, I don't know. I, that period of Eddie Murphy gets really mixed up in my mind. Why didn't you type? I don't think Met- I have. Type Metro 1997 film into Wikipedia and look at the poster. You and it's not Dragnet. The poster. I looked at this a lot when I was watching the film. I thought, oh my God, please. What? So. Oh. <laughs> I don't know why. I so, find that poster really embarrassing. It's it's Eddie Murphy. Like, I guess he's got a bulletproof vest on. He's holding his hands up like, as if to say, hey, calm down. And then like in the really foregrounded is like someone holding a, a gun. Uh, it's like a it? drawn 80s poster isn't it or like a straight to video mid 90s oh, yeah. poster it's pure yeah it looks pure straight to video it looks oh. like a VHS um, well so the, the, the this film is really weird right because I've seen this film probably like between 10 and 15 times in my life and I don't know I don't know why actually I do know why it's because Eddie Miffy's here is amazing in it it's like mini cornrows like he looks really good in this film 
Um, we'll talk about his clothing later on. But uh, one of the most I, I remember when I was a teenager, he, uh, Carmen Carmen Ajogo is like really really gorgeous in this film as well as his mm-hmm. sort of on and off love interest. And I couldn't put my finger on why I watched this film so much over the years. Admittedly, I haven't seen it in about 10 years, but I watched it like 10, 15 times when I was in my teens and 20s. And I think it's because I really like Michael Wincott, who plays the main bad guy, mm-hmm. um, uh, Michael Corder. And uh, is it Michael Corder? Yeah, Michael Corder. And I just really, apart from like this and Strange Days and like Robin Hood, um, you, you, you're sort of stuck, aren't you? There's not many films that he's really in as a meaty role. You can really get him steep in, into Mike. Um, and the reason this film popped into my head is because I was watching, um, I was on Twitter a couple of weeks ago and someone said, what is the first film that pops into your head when you think about Michael Rappaport? And I thought, well, obviously Metro and Sixth Day. And I thought, well, Metro, I haven't seen that for a while. I like to watch it now, you know, kind of soberly and, and see what I think about it. And it is not good. This film is not good. And it's 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 not good in a way that's quite boring because <laughs> he is he is a negotiator. Bear in mind, I think as well, the fact this was released in 97. I think this year and next year was the film The Negotiator with Samuel L. Jackson and um, Kevin Spacey. And he, he plays someone. He's like a, a wisecracking kind of negotiator. But he's his wisecrackingness is muted because he's only wisecracking when he's either talking to his police chief or Carmen uh, Ijogo. Um, so yeah. it, otherwise, he's he's a quite a boring character. Michael Rappaport is brought on as his. his um, so he's a negotiator uh, at the start of the film. His partner, played by Art Evans, who everyone will know as the guy you want to hug and die hard to uh, die harder. And he uh, his it, Michael Corder, played by Michael Wincott, is a bit of a tinker and they, they catch him, put him in prison. He escapes. And then it's just. Uh, him trying to get kidnap Carmen Ajogo so we can get Eddie Murphy to go into the police evidence locker to get the jewels he originally nicked when he got caught, give them back to him so he can bugger off. Michael Wincott in this film escapes from prison by going into the laundry room and just grabbing onto, you know, the laundry room was like the rotating kind of cable car of, of like, you know, uh, prison uniforms just grabbing it like he's doing a pull-up and just just goes just that's it you just see him like lift himself up uh and like on his hands and feet as if he's on like a cable and then he's just escaped (laughs) (laughs) okay and the whole film is like that um there's a bit of the start where michael rapport says he can read lips so you know that's gonna happen and um at the end of the film and yeah, so you've got the, the majority of the film is taken up by Will Smith talking to Carmen Ajogo and just trying to win her back in a really crap way by just saying that, you know, she says, oh, look, all you care about is your job. You don't care about anything else. And him saying, oh, I've changed, haven't I, though, remember? And her saying, have you got any proof of that beyond you just saying words and him saying, oh, I've changed, I have. Mm-hmm. Um, she's with someone else who just seems like he was apparently a famous basketball player who is like re- seems really loving and, and everyone is a big fan of and um, but the the moment that she sort of shows any interest in Eddie Murphy again because his partner's dead he's just not mentioned anymore they don't even say why he split up and the whole film has this kind of feeling that things just happen and they don't have to be explained because it's a script like uh you know she she doesn't she breaks up with this like really loving like this really loving man 
just because it's in the script mm-hmm. or um you know he, michael wincott escapes from prison because it's in the script and it's like okay that's that's just happened then off screen i guess um the end of this film as well is which and it's over 20 years so i don't mind it's a it's a setup in which michael wincott is in this abandoned it's like a, almost like a what's the word like an a, airport kind of hangar thing mm. And he almost like a got, Romanian industrial estate, really. But, it may yeah. honestly, it's a step a step up from that. And he's got Carmen Jogo on this circular saw that will cut her head off if Eddie Murphy doesn't hold down this button. And in holding down this button, Michael Wincott uh, is going to just drive into him because he's in he's in the way of the you know the airport entrance. And Michael Rappaport is on a because he's a sniper um, is on a on like a on a roof uh, you know a little bit away. And the whole end sequence, why he doesn't just shoot Michael Wincott dead and end this whole facade is because he can't see him. He's like, you know, he's, he doesn't know the Michael Wincott's there, but he's always just, you know, it's really badly, it's really badly set up geographically. So you can't, you don't really understand where Michael Rapport is or where, why he can't just shoot the Michael Wincott or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he's like, oh, I haven't got a clean shot. I've got a clean shot kind of thing. But at the end of the film, just before Eddie Murphy is going to get run over by this car because Michael Wincott is going to just drive into him and kill him on the way out of this air hangar with all of his stuff and piss off into the distance. Eddie Murphy turns around and shouts, obviously, because this is the thing, Rupert. He turns around and shouts to, to Michael Rappaport, shoot the car, shoot the car. Now, if you, if someone mouthed that to me, I'd think they're saying shoot the car there. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not, there's no subtlety there. But then, but but then it cut, cuts back to what Michael Rappaport can see, and he can just see into the warehouse, and he just shoots the windshield, and then you know the car spins off. So it just cheats. The end of the film just just massively cheats. Uh, you're like, oh, so you can see him there now, can he? And okay, that's that then. Uh, um, yeah, how convenient. You shoot a moving car perfectly. So, uh, but the whole film is it, it spends too much time with the um, Eddie Murphy, Carmen Jogo bickering slash flirting. And then you realize that I'd much rather be watching Michael Wincott growling his way like really meanly through this this heist. The heist is done in like a minute or two. And you're like, why can't that be the film? Because he he mm. is a complete and utter bastard in this film. And it's perfect because it's Michael Wincott. Um, yeah. yeah, but it's it's like Eddie Murphy almost it's like Eddie Murphy if he had taken a load of tramadol. Because it's like he has a couple of lines that like are supposed to be funny, but then he delivers them pretty well, and then it's like, oh, I'm tired now. So then it maybe just... it's the Beverly Hills Cop three problem then, like where he was really, really wanted to shake off the kind of comedy persona. It could well uh, be, uh, and yet he was kept on being given comedy scripts, but just not delivering them as comedies. Um, it, it, his clothes is... because we've it... got expectations of him, and I, I, I wish he'd. Especially from that poster. I just, yeah, exactly. I mean, he's basically shrugging on the poster, and any poster involving someone shrugging is a comedy in my book. <laughs> even, even if it was, if it was a, if the cover was of Schindler's List, yes. and it's Liam Neeson shrugging near a mass grave, you're like, ah, oh, it's gonna be a knockabout fish out of water comedy, wicked in black <laughs> and white. Um, yeah, it just looks like Dragnet to me, the cover. Um, but there's. Yeah, uh, there's also a bit in this film where they try to stop uh, when Michael Wincott. There's like a decent chase sequence where he tries to escape from this heist, um, and 
as well there's a line in this film where uh, at the start uh, i think it's the actor's called kevin mccall where eddie murphy walks in and says right we're gonna have to just take him out he's got you know this this it's like the preamble sort of thing you know and they say we're gonna have to shoot this guy because he's gonna kill the hostages i can't talk him out of it you know give me a gun i'll go in and take him out and it's fine and that happens but then michael wincott he goes in and says oh yeah he's uh, he knows he knows all of our tactics and he knows he knows how we work. We're gonna have to take this guy out. He's gonna he's gonna kill people, and he's not gonna stop. And the reason that um, that Eddie Murphy is convinced that uh, Michael Wincott knows all the tactics is because basically, when he goes up and says, "I'm a negotiator," he just says, "I'll piss off," <laughs> and gives him a, like someone's ear, and it's like, "Oh, he's he's obviously and never explains how he's like knows all the things. He's not like ex police or anything. It's just like what? And he's not. He's just a, he's just a tinker. He doesn't know, I... he doesn't know you. He just likes you. He doesn't like you." I don't get a sense of the tone of this film. Like, so obviously there are a couple of comedic lines from Eddie, but is it? Yeah, yeah. Is it serious? Or? I think it is. Yeah, it's the majority of it is serious. You've got whenever Michael Winkler is on screen, right? He cracks no gags. Honestly, he doesn't even like double click his fingers on part of the camera. He is very serious in this film and whenever he talks to someone or whenever he interacts with someone you think is he just gonna kill him or cut the ears off or whatever but then whenever it's Eddie Murphy he's either like really really serious or just like hey and flirty and you think meh so it's like totally uneven as well as quite boring and fixated on the wrong parts which is my it's, it's kind of ironic isn't it that um Beverly Hills Cop was famously written as a serious movie and then they cast Eddie Murphy and it turned into of kind of more of a knockabout comedy and yet <laughs> later in his career it kind of went the opposite direction someone was like writing comedies for him and he, but he didn't want to play ball yeah um, so this is um this is this film metro is i don't know if you're an eddie murphy fan you've obviously already seen it it's mm. it's like one of the few action films michael rapaport is is in um and michael wincott's in it and art evans are in it and they, they're always good to see but i think I, and I know I'll probably watch this film again because I really, really like Michael Wincott. And I just wish, I mean, he's 63 now and I just wish he was in more films. He plays a very bad guy in Strange Days as well. Right. So that was Metro. OK. Uh, I went to the cinema. Oh, OK. Ooh, to watch old. Which is. What, from M. the 1990s? <laughs> what? To watch old, it's M. Night Shyamalan's latest film. Oh, right. You, there was such a long gap then. I thought it was called, you said, I went to the cinema to watch Old Witches, and I thought, you've covered that. <laughs> no, Old Witches, <laughs> M. Night Shyamalan's <laughs> latest film. Um, so synopsis is that a group of people on an exclusive vacation are sent to a secret cove um, where they will age 50 years in a single day um i th there's no real need to say any more than that um other well, than they do they choose to go there they go to the secret cove they're obviously not told that they're going to age oh, right. 50 years in a single day, but um, it becomes pretty quickly apparent. I'll, I won't say anything more really about those the events as such, other than okay. some of the people 
who go there are very young children and others are old people. So you can kind of imagine where this would go. So basically you forget the science because it is just a purely magical setup really for some really grotesque body horror and lots of ethical and moral questions. It's ostensibly very silly, but it's also pretty deep underneath, which I find preferable to things which are complex on the surface and actually dumb underneath, if you see what I mean. Yeah. It's my it's a preference. Um so this is M. Night Shyamalan. Obviously it's again he's taking a pretty elemental motif um as he so often does uh, the, in in this case time and that is the kind of big that's the monster really in this movie is time and um obviously rapid aging i wonder if that's partly why it's so divisive with audiences because i can imagine if i watched this when i was very young uh which tend to be the kind of age range that they target a lot of horror movies at, sort of, say, 18 to 30, let's say. But I, because time is not an enemy of youth, so I wonder if it's just not that interesting to younger viewers, perhaps partly because of the fact that it's, it, it like, it's interesting because because of it, obviously the characters like um relationship with time and and it actually becomes quite profound towards the end but really it's a, it is a horror movie because um it's 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 a goofy concept i suppose which could be delivered very poorly but i think what m night Shyamalan does really well he he maximizes the idea he takes this simple idea and takes it to his most interesting places like stuff you you might not think of but makes really horrible sense within the internal rules of the film and i think that's what matters really it's not the plausibility of the concept itself but the internal consistency does it play by its own rules which it does uh and the fact that everything in the film is accelerated means it's really really fast moving when things kick off so you get all these overlapping mini dramas all happening at once and a, a palpable sense of panic um so in one moment you'll have someone uh, something awful happen to someone over here and then literally just down the beach suddenly there'll be a scream and some other horrible event is going to happen some other horrible discovery is going to happen as a result of these people's rapid aging um the quality of the performance isn't really consistent across the board I wouldn't say. And I do think that Shyamalan's brand of offbeat humour might not be to everyone's taste. He doesn't really do believable dialogue as such. He tends to do, do dialogue that's necessary to the story, so it can feel a little bit clunky at times. Um, I, th I found it was occasionally a little bit cheap looking, but I'm pretty sure this was because my screening was in the wrong ratio. And that is very bothersome, as we know. <laughs> if you go to the cinema and it's in the wrong ratio, it was like it was like it was slightly zoomed in like oh, i could tell that seems like it would be irritating as shit. so it's slightly out of focus <laughs> and and i could tell that things were being cut off because i know and the thing is with Shyamalan, 
is he's such a kind of like filmmaker filmmakers filmmaker is that he will use the frame he'll use deep focus and stuff he'll put someone right over the edge in one edge of the frame and have someone else right over the other edge of the uh, other side of the frame and it's like okay this doesn't look right and i don't believe it's him doing this deliberately anyway but so that's probably can be excused um but i loved it and i i think it's properly intense and scary and it has this kind of goofy edge which never spills into outright comedy just keeps it on the right side so i yes i very much enjoyed this it's weird and original and gross and actually pretty thought-provoking as well it, 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 I think from what you've said that it, it, it's going to be going a bit. And I, I know I watched this one because the last M Night Shyamalan film I watched was um, the visit. Visit was it called? Visit. The visit, yeah. Yeah, the visit, which I, I really, really liked, and I've actually watched it again since, and it's mm. still I still enjoy it. Um, but I, I, what the one thing that was sticking in my head as you were talking about that was, it, it seems like a lot relies on the actors for that. If you're playing someone fifty years. You know, or fifty years. You know, you've got young kids, sorry, older actors playing someone with a mindset mm. from fifty years prior. That could come across as like really cheesy or embarrassing, but it does work, does it? What, like, as in, like, yeah, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying, like, because they wouldn't have had. Well, this all comes into it, which is why it's so interesting, and I think it's why some of the performances are really, really quite clever, especially with the older actors because it's like um how do you play someone who's got who's who has become you know like 60 in a single day but without um any of the life experience of that so it's quite an odd thing but it's just it's just like with a concept like this you want the best ideas to be thrown in and i think generally speaking he gets he puts the best ideas in there um, which is yeah. cool, and, and I get—I I just think Shyamalan's—he's uh, a filmmaker that excites me in a way that some people are excited, say, by the latest Christopher Nolan film, for example, because it's like, oh, what you know, what is what we're going to have next? And I—I I get that sort of excitement. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah I, I think with his films, it's—it's it's not like I suppose with. With Nolan, it's like a, a puzzle you have to unwrap sometimes tediously. With with M. Night Shyamalan, it's it's like um, a high concept, and it's like, does it work or not? And Basically, then, yeah. And sometimes yeah. it doesn't. But I would say a majority of the time it does. Mm-t. Let's forget about the happening. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's really cool. And uh, what was I going to say then? It was... Um, oh, I've lost my train of thought now, sorry. But yeah, no, I, 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 do, I do like... Um, I do like Emily Shamlin, and what was I going to say that was going to piss myself off now? <laughs> oh, I've also, yeah. I'll, I'll watch piss myself back. off, not just everyone else. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's old. Oh, Tomasa McKenzie's in this. Wasn't she in The the Witch? Was she? I've seen her in something. Or maybe the, maybe the other character in that film is called Tomasa, and that's why it's just popped to my head. Um... She's really, yeah. Uh, I wish there's more I could say about it because it, because yeah. if I were to describe some of the stuff that happens, then it would, it would make it even more appealing to you, but it also mean that that shock factor would be lost. So, um, 
but Rufus Sewell is in there and he's brilliant. You know, he's... Uh, oh, that, that's what I was going to say. Sorry, it's um, you talking about you'd rather you'd rather just like um, you know the concept be set and then science pushed to one side. Um, mm. And I, and I, I totally agree with you because I, I think when someone says right, you know, they've gone to this island of age fifty years, boom, off your trot. The films mm. that get and the films that get bogged down in science for things. Yeah, like the best example of this I can think of is. Um, Something like uh, predestination, where it's like right, they just mm. travel back in time with this violin case. That's it. Yeah. But then you get Absolutely. films with bogged down like the mechanics fit. You're like, look, this isn't real. I don't need to know all the ins and outs of this fictional science. Yeah. No, that, that's good. That, that's that's really intrigued me. Possibly film of the week. Maybe. <laughs> but you haven't talked about predators. Yes. <laughs> or even um, the predator, <laughs> which I still can't bring myself to. Whoa. Because you'll probably vomit while you're watching it. <laughs> I watched this is a two minutes. Uh, I watched The Untouchables from 1987. And, Good work. Uh, yeah, I, I've seen this. I think I've seen this in bits. I, it's yeah. one of those films that I obviously it's been kicking around for so many years. I think I've watched bits of it at certain times, and in my head, I've got the whole film. But I sat down and, and watched it start to finish uh, with pretty, you know, like relatively few disruptions. And um, I, I really like this. And I, I was completely on board with I was on board with the characters and when when something happened to one of them or one of them died or whatever I was yes. genuinely like a bit sad for it, the whole thing especially the oh, way yeah. some of the things happen yes. um yeah. uh, the ending the ending sequence where <laughs> through the trade station and I think it's Michael Jeter isn't it I know him mainly from Tango and Cash from Michael Jeter um who oh, is the, the it is actually, yeah the, the book, account the, the bookkeeper, the bookkeeper yeah, the account. yeah and Elliot Ness is there and he's with Andy Garcia the ever sexy Andy Garcia whom I had hair jealousy for on the cover of Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead what a man what a hair what hair um in yeah they're in this train station and he's just watching this um this woman with about 40 suitcases like awkwardly bang mm -hmm. with wooden wheels this child who's about 46 up some steps and this like really weirdly graceful shootout happens, and I was just not expecting it after the film because the film is is such sort of pockets of sudden violence, and then it had this really balletic shootout at the end, and I, I I just thought yeah this is this all of this film is good, all of the set pieces, all of the all of the acting, and I I don't know why especially I think it's obviously because Sean Connery's um. Frank Boff now, but when the scene where they're hanging around like the border, waiting for, um, waiting for someone to come along that they can arrest, and he's just walking around the groups of people, just giving them because he's just a typical Irish beat cop, giving them advice on how to cope with the stakeout, and he gives them all like <laughs> little separate, really practical pieces of advice. It felt really theatrical and really stagey, and um, I. I don't know. I just I was quite enthralled by it, and it's a film I'll I'll definitely watch again. It's I, very it just, watchable, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, and it's just it's just got some really nice performances, and yeah, you can see why it was. Uh, it's funny because obviously, like, it's almost De Niro as um, Al Capone is almost just this distant presence because it's more like a. It feels almost like a. I don't know, like a buddy comedy, not buddy comedy, like a buddy cop sort of like mm, road yeah. trip film. I don't know. I, I I really liked it. It was a nice balance, and I I thought it would be a bit grittier than it was, but I liked. No, it's very, how... uh, it's very, it's very accessible, isn't it? For yeah, yeah. The type of film it is, and it and it's proof that you can just throw a bunch of talent at the screen, and it will work sometimes because 
It's Brian De Palma directing. It's, it's David Mamet writing. It's Ennio Morricone doing the beautiful music. And of course, you've got this amazing ensemble cast as well. So, and it's yes. such a cle- it's so cleanly told. Everything that bear in mind, like you know, prohibition is something I just know that they didn't. You know, there was a few years in America where no one could crack open the cans of Breakers Lager. But w- <laughs> when you're watching it, it just it's so. Uh, breezily set out without too much exposition. It's like, this is a situation. This is what they're trying to do. These are the things that are happening. It just felt really clean and neat, and I, yes. I really appreciated that. So, yeah. Uh, unsurprisingly, guys, The Untouchables is a really good film. The stylized uh, sequence with the steps is um, a reference to Battleship Potemkin, the Eisenstein film from the 20s. Oh, well, I assumed everyone would know that, Rupert. I mean, I, I <laughs> well, crashed in, off my lip. In that, when the when the big rebellion is going on and the people are getting gunned down on the steps, on the Odessa steps, then uh, there's like a a pram which is just rolling down the steps as they're all getting gunned down. It's sort of like the kind of death of innocence kind of thing. But yeah, so... Wh- which one of us went to film school again? I forget sometimes. Uh, I can't remember either of us. Um, so... Yeah, Untouchables. Well, yeah, definitely recommend that. I watch that probably every year. Oh, Very really? Good. Nice. Mm-hmm. It's it just Kevin Costner's face going about that pram thing because obviously it's got this like yeah. reverb laden. Every time she's clacking those like bloody 1930s awkward pram with a 46 year old son against the step, he is looking down thinking, please go away. Please. <laughs> Get out it of this really situation. Don't He's need this. So he knows he can't go down there and just say, "Right, I'll give you a hand," and then piss off. So brilliant, yeah. Um, okay, let's uh, move on to Room Two Three Seven, which is on Prime. This is a documentary. Uh, have you seen this? No, this and weirdly, there's one called Fourteen O Six, isn't there, with Samuel L. Jackson and John Cusack? Two numbered okay. films I need to watch. Um, so yeah, Room Two Three Seven is uh, it's a documentary about basically it's about The Shining uh, as in Kubrick's The Shining, and it's sort of a selection of people who have essentially looked into the film far too much and are seeing things in there. Uh, they're the basically a bunch of those words, Rupert. You've got to be careful. This is uh, you are on the plank here. <laughs> I've I've read a few books um, about about a single uh, film, yes, about about this film, but also about some of the, actually by some of the people who are putting forward these theories, basically. Okay. Um, so, for example, one of them is genuinely convinced that Stanley Kubrick directed the moon landings, um, as in the yes, and his basis for this isn't specifically 2001 a space odyssey which would, you would have thought would be the real evidence but no it, it, he is claiming that kubrick is admitting that he filmed the moon landings with little references throughout the shining this is the level we're at here total now, bollocks is that level really. <laughs> so i found it, this film is at its best for me personally, as someone who adores The Shining, the film, it's at its best when it's pointing out stuff. For example, there's, there's, there's one person who's mapped out the hotel and worked out that there are loads of, like, 
geographical irregularities, pointing out that actually there are places where there'll be a window in, in place and yet to the outside and yet behind it there should be a corridor sort of thing, that sort of thing. I find that stuff really interesting because that stuff which genuinely feeds into a sense of kind of subconscious unease. You see what I mean? Like you don't necessarily notice it when you're watching a movie, but clearly it would feed into your sense of unease. Now, I will say that probably the reason why the hotel's geography doesn't make sense is because the set burned down. They never mention this. The fact that the set, the actual Overlook Hotel set burned down halfway through, they had to rebuild it. And that's probably more of a reason why it doesn't make sense. But anyway, um, and, you know, there's some good bits where someone's talking about uh, the use of mirror imagery, not just mirrors, but but doubles and people walking backwards and speaking backwards, that sort of thing. So that's interesting. But it's less convincing when people are claiming that obvious continuity errors are deliberate. Um and things which clearly were not intentional. And yeah, so, and then you get ridiculous hyperbole, like one of the one of the commentators starts by saying, Kubrick is like a meta brain for our planet. And it's like, don't really need that sort of thing, do you? Like, um, yeah, there's, it, there's, this, there's this bit where this lady, uh, one of the commentators, claims that this poster in the background is actually a picture of a minotaur right which would be an interesting observation because a minotaur obviously they they patrol labyrinths don't they so and you've got a maze in the film so okay that would be interesting but it's it isn't a minotaur she's saying it looks like a skier on the poster but it's actually a minotaur and it's like no that's a skier that is someone who's skiing um so wrong but okay. And then she says later, oh, and there's a moment where Jack Torrance, Jack Nicholson's character, pulls a minotaur-like expression. It's like, what is that? What what expression does a minotaur pull? Because I reckon the ball ring on his nose. <laughs> I, I have no idea. Um, so the problem isn't the depth of thinking about the, the film, but the weakness of the th thinking about the film, like these leaps of logic and wild assumptions. And of course, conveniently, there's no one. It's there's no one there to say that's bollocks. That is exactly. There's no one around there to counter argue or point out things like, well, the set burned down, so that is a reason why it doesn't make sense. So, yeah. So there you've got the guy who claims that the moon landings are faked, um, and uh, but it, there's a there's a really. I, I kept thinking of. Um, the idea of Occam's razor, which I'm not sure I'd be able to define exactly, but the scientific kind of uh, rule that this basically the simplest explanation is usually correct. And it, like, for example, Kubrick has said that the reason uh, the room number was changed uh, from 217 in the book to 237 is because the hotel that um, they were filming at for the outside shots, I think, had a 217 but didn't have a 237. So they didn't want to upset the guests in a real hotel. That mm. sounds like a pretty understandable explanation. But yeah. but no, but wait, the guy who the guy who believes that Kubrick directed the moon landings, he reckons 
that he changed it to 237 because 237 is a reference to the standard distance from the moon to Earth as in 237,000 miles. So therefore, it's a reference, in fact, to the moon landing again. Th this, this is what we're talking about. It sounds like something, th this is something I would lose patience with within seconds because <laughs> it, it's just, w when you've got a lot of people just basically just sounds like a film of like 90 minutes or whatever, just conspiracy theories with no like it referee, and no, so, no yeah. one to fight for the other side. It, yes. it just, yeah, I, I, this just sounds like just people getting pissed and talking bollocks to be honest I, I, I there was there's one one of the commentators has this theory about it um, the whole film being a, having a subtext of genocide which I do kind of agree with to an extent because but only because it's directly addressed in the film because the whole thing is that this uh, kind of uh, is the, the social elites what um, the manager calls the best people. They're the ones who control the hotel. They, they're the ones who warded off the Indian attacks. They're, they're the explicitly racist ones. They're like, because um, you've got the butler, haven't you? And he's just explicitly racist. And there clearly, there's a kind of white patriarchy at work, isn't there? Like, and and so it's explicit in the film. Um, and I think this could be something interesting there. But when they start, when he starts going on about how there are references to the number forty-two, for example, and that is the year nineteen forty-two was the year that um, the final solution, Hitler's final solution, started. It's like, well, you've gone too far there, haven't you? That, that, that that's that's reaching. It doesn't. You don't need to reach to that to actually recognise that there is a genuine. Um, subtext about sort of white patriarchal elites um so hmm does uh, like this film i don't know what it is like you you obviously know far 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 more about Stanley kubrick and his filmography than myself what is it about this film why do people like have these this level of deep dives into his other like surely in the rest of his oeuvre there would be like if it was true, if all these things, this moon landing, the fakings and stuff were true, then there would be all these other tidbits and other, other things to extrapolate from other films. Why is this film so fixated on? I think it's because they all know that, um, that Kubrick, uh, part of his research for the film was uh, Freud, Sigmund Freud's The, the Uncanny, which was a book or a small book uh, or even just an essay perhaps but it was really defining what it is that makes us feel uneasy so for example twins was an example of what we uh doubles you know sort of thing um mirror images and things things that make us feel uneasy in a kind of very subconscious way and so i think what they're doing is they're extrapolating from that that anything in the film which is slightly unusual or anything within the frame at all must have some kind of it must be a pointer towards some kind of subconscious meaning uh because it was genuinely Kubrick's intention to make you feel uneasy so therefore they believe that everything is is specifically designed to make you feel that way so there must be deeper meaning to every single frame every single 
object and it's like no one's got time to do for that level of detail even kubrick so i i just think they take it too far it's like that's the other thing is they've all got the basis of an okay argument uh, for example like genocide or mirror images or uh geography that doesn't make sense etc but they just take it to an extreme and you just think it, this is more of a film about these weird obsessives than anything so yeah i think yeah it's likely to annoy fans of the shining to be honest so and possibly for people who aren't fans of the shining just confuse them and make them think and put them off the shining perhaps yeah like oh that film's obviously just a just a supports a lot of conspiracy theories yeah yeah both of that mm-hmm. um i'm not going to watch that but that just it just mm-hmm. sounds infuriating to be honest what i did watch though when i won't watch that I won't watch a study of one of the greatest films ever made, but I will watch Anti-Life slash Breach starring Bruce Willis and Thomas Jane 2020, won't I? Um, this is a film that, um, if you remember, we actually referenced it because we were talking about Bruce Willis just being on some sort of really strong painkillers uh, a, a few months ago. And if you look, if you type in Breach 2020 and look at Bruce Willis's face on the poster of this, we've done this before. That is not a man that is proud to be in this film that is not a man who is is even in that photo shoot devoted to that moment is it there's a man who is thinking what am i doing it is just that face is is the last 10 years of his career unfortunately when I was watching this film, right, so this this whole film is, is basically alien. Um, it, the the Earth has suffered some awful event. 300,000 people are on a spaceship called the Ark, which is going to a new colony called New Earth. And uh, someone cr- crawls aboard. He is the secret father. Uh, he's got the admirals, played by Thomas Jane's daughter, pregnant, and he's on there as a janitor. Bruce Willis is head janitor, Thomas Jane, and everyone else goes into stasis. And then they out in space and this weird uh parasite bursts out of people and it turns the crew into like instead of actually bursting out and killing them it bursts out and turns them into effectively zombies that this alien parasite controls mm-hmm. um it's it's such a weirdly meandering film um that it starts off and you, you get the setup right they're off in this thing and everyone's in cryogenic stasis so you just basically get um i think his name is johnny messner bruce willis uh, and a few other people wandering and the, a man with the roughest voice i've ever heard um wandering around these corridors it's like you know you've got six medics um six janitors and uh, six soldiers to make sure nothing dicky happens roughest voice you've ever heard so it's michael wincott Honestly, it's a, there's a bit. If you watch, I used to. Do you know when you go on, on, on Netflix? This is a Netflix film, and you hover over the trailer, and it just shows a couple of scenes. Mm. It's a scene in a canteen where the guy goes, "All right, are you guy?" And it's like, "Whoa, your oh, voice, Bobcat Goldthwait, right?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he, uh, he's just this ridiculous voice. Um, this there's a scene in this, and I thought that was odd. Where Bruce Willis is, it's like Bruce Willis. In the film, he plays an alcoholic janitor, and it's like he's just a bit pissed and not really taking anything seriously. That there's no weight to anything he does. And there's a scene where they film him just walking out of the canteen, and I thought that's really odd. It's like they just like ended the scene and he's walking off and he's like scratching his head, looking around. And I thought that just doesn't need to be in the film, but they've just kept it in because it's Brucey boy. 
this film is so generic. Right? It's not bad. It's just really, really, really generic. And the reason it, it's made bad is because I'm in the film longer than Thomas Jane is. And 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 the reason is, I thought, oh, this actually isn't too bad. And the and I double questioned myself because I realized that I thought, oh, this film isn't too bad, is be purely because Bruce Willis doesn't die in the first four seconds. It's because I actually thought, oh, God, he's hanging around. He's actually in the film. He's not just like on the poster and then blows his own brains out before the credits have come up. He's actually like in the film. And I was so excited about that that I watched the whole thing thinking, oh, that was good. And now, afterwards, I think, no, Brett. Because the, the CG, it's weird. It's that they run out of money like in chronological order. Because it started off and I thought, when it's showing the external CG of the ship, I thought, that looks, that looks all right. Fast forward 45 minutes, I'm thinking, oh, it looks a bit dicky now for some reason. <laughs> and then by the end of the film, they're like, oh, someone's drawn that. Um, <laughs> Someone and, has and, rendered that on a video toaster on an A1200. <laughs> There's this weird fixation in the film as well with when things start to go really um, fruit shaped with people saying, right, we need to wake up, you know, Thomas Chen, we need to wake up the Admiral. And I'm thinking everyone is safe. When everyone is safe and you guys are having this real trouble containing this alien threat it cannot get to the everyone who is in this cryogenic stasis it cannot get to thomas jane who is that command of the mission you will very most likely all die the worst thing you can do is wake up the admiral and cause more problems um and yet they're obsessed with it there's also a bit that tickled me where they, they someone gets it basically says right i'm frank boff and they get in an escape pod and they say oh there's you know there's hundreds of escape pods and you know he's like no i'm, I'm going i'm leaving you all to it and you don't really see what happens to him and then it cuts to some cg of the outside of the ship the escape pod is a third of the size of the ship and i thought one bloke in that that's like a town and he's just scooting off it's like there's no hundreds of those there's probably two or three at most um it's worth a watch, if only. You're desperate to see Bruce Willis actually being in a film beyond the first 10 seconds and then just miming, signing a check off screen. So uh, um, on that basis only, it's three out of five. <laughs> um, the tagline for this film In is space, no one can hear you dream. Close, <laughs> but blander. It's deep in space, they are not alone. Okay. So, you know, it's generic. However, it's bothering me because I think there needs to be a comma in that, but there's not. Deep in space, comma, they are not alone because there's a natural pause, isn't there? Deep in space, they are not alone. Um, well, also, also if, I, if deep in space, they are not alone, it would be he or she, wouldn't it? It, it wouldn't be if, if I said, you know... I'm not alone. They'd be like, no, we're here as well. So you're not alone. There's a group of us, isn't it? <laughs> so it should be deep in space. This specific group of people aren't alone. That would be better. This, or so they don't need the comma. This specific group of people are not alone in deep space. <laughs> yeah, but even then it would be this specific group of people are not alone. Dot dot dot. <laughs> Indeed, mate. Um, yeah, I can't see myself watching this. To be no, honest. no, I, 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 I know, I knew you wouldn't, but um, but yeah, I did. So there. <laughs> but you did. I would like to. We, we haven't got much time left, so I'll quickly no. 
How many more have you got left? You got one more? I, I, I've got two. I'm happy to carry them over, to be honest. Um, yeah, yeah, I might, yeah, I might yeah. carry a couple over. Um, so it's just a question of. I'll, I'll do a couple more two minutes and then I'll be done. So okay. I'll just quickly talk about um, a film called The Joneses, which I'd never heard of. This is on Prime. I'd never heard of this film. It's uh, no, no, never a 2009 film by someone called Derek Bort. Um, this is David, in fact. Um, he most recently made a film I've never heard of with Russell Crowe called Unhinged. Anyway. Oh, no, that's the one where he's driving around and he's bloody fooming. I, I covered it a few months ago. Oh, right. OK. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> so this is The Joneses. This was made in 2009. And the premise is that this idyllic family... Um, of whom David Coveney is the dad and Demi Moore is mum. They move into this very exclusive Hampton-style community and immediately become extremely popular in their various activities, whether it's like socialising, golfing, gaming, makeup, whatever. And then we realise that they are all working in advertising. They are a fictional family put together a, a group of salesmen pretending to be a family and they're selling their lifestyle to other people, basically people who want to be like them and so will buy the products that they're using. So it's quite a cool idea in a way. Uh, and the, the family's sales are tracked and they're, uh, they're kind of advised by their boss to get into certain relationships so they can kind of maximize sales and things. And they're provided with the specific products that they have to sell each month, I think. So there's a big chunk of Truman Show type stuff in here where, like, there'll be a party and someone will say about how nice the food is. And it's like, uh, and then they'll, like, like the mum will hold up a box and it will be, oh, yeah, you can get these, uh, you know, downtown, etc. And all that kind of stuff. So and every it's time a, it's a bottle of brown sauce. Exactly. <laughs> Even if it's a golf club, it's always. <laughs> um, uh, it's a bit. It's it's a so it's a bit of Truman Show. It's a bit less comedic and a bit more romantic. So it's a cool idea, which is pretty used pretty well for the most part. The problems start when the family start questioning the ethics of what they're doing because, frankly. In the end, they all seem like quite nice, compassionate, empathic and loving people. Precisely the kind of people who'd be very unlikely to go into this flagrantly unethical work in the first place. And none of them are really suited to sales at all because they're just too nice. Um, and the so there's that part of it. Um, but the, the other issue is the film really doesn't stick the landing in the end. Like it's 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 really good up or, or at least really engaging up to a point and then there's a very dramatic event which basically sets up an extremely unsatisfying finale like a, there's a series of events in the last you know 15 20 minutes which are just totally out of keeping with the characters and totally out of keeping with the tone up to that point which is a real pity because it's sort of 75 percent good film sort of darkly comic ironic in a desperate housewives kind of way it's and it feels like a solid modern fable but then it just really flunks it at the end you could kind of imagine it right being a long-running tv series and thankfully it's just a 90 minute movie 
and does I think it's just, just does it just explode? Does it instead of exploring, it just it just says, "Oh right, this is it's, it's the end sequence now. Things have to kick off." It's it's more yeah. like a pretty bow situation uh, where it feels it needs to wrap it up and it just in a very unsatisfying way given everything that's happened up to that point where it's actually been genuinely quite um unpredictable and stuff it's like oh right okay this is this feels like it feels like an ending which has been tacked on by a committee it feels like they this should have been a darker or weirder or more interesting ending but then they just someone just decided this isn't sellable which is ironic so yeah um and finally shall i just quickly i'll just quickly talk about um a horror movie i watched on prime good called death ship which is a horror movie made in 1980 uh so this cruise ship captained by a very curmudgeonly george kennedy who most will probably know from the naked gun um so this cruise ship He's a captain of this cruise ship. It collides with an old Nazi warship, right, in the middle of the ocean. So mm. bear in mind, this is modern day or like 1980, but crashes into this Nazi warship. So the cruise ship is sunk. The survivors, of which there are like six, are on life rafts. And they, because they're stuck in the middle of the ocean, they decide to climb onto the Nazi warship for safety. And it is, of course, haunted so you can have the i'd expect so <laughs> you have the captain and his deputy you have this young stud and his hot date a couple of kids an old lady um and that's the lot and n- by the way not once did any of them acknowledge the fact that they their ship just sunk and hundreds of people died they know it doesn't even mention it's just like oh let's just get on with it um so the ship, the, this Nazi ship, the death ship, literally has a mind of its own. It's effectively a series of fiendish traps. Um, so stuff, machinery will just st- suddenly start or um, something will like swing across the bow and like knock someone off or whatever. But the big scares, and I put scares in the inverted commas, include things like a gramophone playing on its own and the ship's steering wheel turns slightly on its own. They are course, gentler than my father's touch, Rupert. Oh, my God, yeah. So the fact that it's a Nazi boat is pretty much irre- irrelevant for most parts, just shorthand for evil. So you get a few flashes of some grungy zombie makeup, but mostly it's just George Kennedy wandering around slowly, occasionally speaking German. Um, it has good lighting and sound design. And it is handsomely shot, but my God, it's boring. Oh my God, it's boring. It's there's 55 minutes. I looked at the clock. It's 55 minutes before there's any conflict between any of the survivors, before there's a crossword between them. It's amazing. It's 70 minutes before they even work out that it's a Nazi ship they're on. 70 how, minutes that's like how, that's how like long is the film? minutes from the end i was gonna say yeah. staggering it's like we all know what it is and yet uh, it's like it's one of those movies where like you just assume that they are aware of what the ship is and then and then they suddenly this is a big revelation towards the end it's like really i mean we're i'm i've been up to date on this for a long time anyway so the the scenes of peril will be people getting like knocked off edges or dunked in the water and the rest of the time it, 
it's like we're watching these actors just hang around backstage while they wait to be handed a script. It's, it's in the end, most of the, the demise of most of the characters is due to them excessively panicking by something, something moderately unpleasant rather than being overwhelmed by something monstrous. Cause there's no real ghosts or anything. It's just stuff coming alive on the ship. And so, and weirdly, and the reason I'm ending on this is because it made me think of John Carpenter and not because it's anywhere near that quality, but quite the contrary, because I think it's because I think of John Carpenter making films around this time. And and John Carpenter was someone who took the one of the oldest movie genres, the horror genre, and totally shook it up. And I mean, this film, Death Ship, it was sandwiched between Halloween and The Thing, right? And more importantly, it was made the same year as The Fog, which yeah. was, in fact, John Carpenter's own classical ghost story, if you like, which still managed to be more accessible, uh, sort of dreamier, faster, funnier, gorier than this. And, and Death Ship just looks like a, a relic. It's just stuck in the dusty old stagey days of 50s and 60s haunted house stories where, like, creaking furniture was the primary threat. And, it, and then you've got to think, well, like Alien came out the year before this, and then they come out with this, like hackneyed old twaddle. And anyway, yes, going back to John Carpenter, and it just made me think, it is time that we rewatched all of his films and then talked about it right here. That's a bold, bold, bold statement. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, yeah, no, I'm back. No I'm pretty good. Yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, I think that's the problem when you watch any film and then think, oh, what would John Carpenter would have done that happened from 1998? <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, I totally agree with you. There's a few. We need to stop. Maybe for the next episode, we we keep our films in a in a in a tin and say, right, let's talk about Richard Donner. Let's talk about John Carpenter. Right. Let's, yeah, maybe that's. We, we need to plan something. Maybe some sort of live stream, just a 12-hour live stream of us watching John Carpenter films and then saying, this is good. This is. <laughs> insights like that which will um get us on the next room 237 documentary um well it's that time again when we talk about the the films of the week and i give you the new arkans da i mean for mine the oceans films metro the untouchables anti-life i i think (laughs) it's 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 a glistening parade um I think for me, Ocean, Ocean, sorry, um, The Untouchables is obviously a classic film, and I enjoyed the Ocean's films, but in a in a glittery sort of way. Blood Diamond is the one that really stands out mm. um, and feels feels pretty timeless, even though it is slightly it's a flawed diamond when it comes to the final act. Mm. Uh, I'm gonna say my film of the week is definitely 2006 Leonardo DiCaprio Blood Diamond. Okay, well. I'm going to go with old M. Night Shyamalan's I thought you might. Latest. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, it's it's good. It continues his resurgence. It's exactly the kind of thing that uh, I'm, he should be making. I'm glad he's making. And it's done well. So hopefully he can keep making, you know, mid-budget little horrors like this. I'd be happy with that. Um. Are you ready for your Arkansas? Mm-hmm. So I, I'd like you to get from Carmen Ijogo to Barry Pepper. 
<laughs> okay. Okay. And um, yeah, I've got two. I'm going to carry on to the next one. We'll have to sort of we maybe have to do some sort of special episode when it comes to everything else. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's been fantastic as always. And you you yes. that cr- crawl. I'm definitely going to watch. And there was another one you mentioned mm-hmm. that I'm going to watch as well. So, but yeah, yeah don't breach your anti life. Yeah, maybe stray away from those. <laughs> okay, thank you, <laughs> thank you for guiding me away from the latest Bruce Willis sci-fi film. <laughs> Um, and as always, to you and the listeners, remain beautiful forever and go and be sexy somewhere else. Excellent.